Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Sherwa. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that today's show includes names of deceased persons and discusses state-based violence. If this episode is distressing for you, please come back another week. For crisis support, please call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. On the program today, we have two women who are holding state institutions accountable and using their platforms to bring issues such as structural racism and state violence to the forefront. We start the show with Abiola Ajitamobi, the Director of Innovation Hub at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Abiola spoke to me about her migration story, the people who helped along the way and what true allyship looks like. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Abiola. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are the director of the humanitarian program Innovation Hub at the Asylum Seekers, sorry, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. How does this program support asylum seekers? Yeah, so I'm actually the director of the Innovation Hub, which is in a space and an environment that fosters the journey of people seeking asylum in Australia, assisting them and supporting them to integrate settled um and also participate socially and economically in society. Speaking of economically, as you know, there are Australian employers who might be reluctant to hire refugees who are on precarious visas. So we're looking at um, bridging visas and so on. How would a program like Innovation Hub persuade employers to hire people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds? Yeah, it's about speaking to people's strengths and speaking truth to their capabilities and, and intelligence rather than their labels that society can place on them. So it's about looking for engineers, looking for architects, pediatricians, you know, people that have really strong and um, professional backgrounds um, or even industrial background that are really relevant for today's society in Australia and positioning them as adequate employees that meet the criteria and also are able to give above, to go above, above and beyond to secure and retain and succeed in the role. So we kind of position it from a place of power, from a place of competence and intelligence rather than from people's labels. If I was standing in front of a, of a prospective employer, I'll be talking to them about the individual, about their soft skills, about their technical skills, about their capabilities, about the importance of utilizing that to in the Australian context and the importance of keeping those skills and capabilities alive while they resettle here in Australia or in depending on the visa outcome. So I will be using those strengths as a key this key point of discussion rather than the plights of seeking asylum. Right. Because what I've read and what I know from people who are on these visas is that they're super qualified but for whatever reason, no one, not for whatever reason, I sort of know what the reasons are. They won't give them that chance. They won't take a chance on them because the employees are like, it's too hard. It's too much work. We don't even know what bridging visas are. Like, how would you 
even talk to an employer who's sort of already on the defense when it comes to hiring people from those backgrounds? Yeah, I think we we come to the discussion around our program and the brokerage and service, the no fee for service brokerage offering that we have, which is where we help employers to understand the visa criteria, understand how how they can keep that abreast in terms of compliance. Also understand that is the role and the responsibility of the employee to really disclose when they are in breach of their visa conditions or maybe in breach of the visa conditions due to the visa determination process and the lack of the lack of administrative accuracy or efficiency with the Department of Home Affairs. So it could be either ways that it's impacting on people's visa and their determination process. So it's really about helping employers to understand that and understand how to do that and how to keep updated so that they can that fear of being able to keep on top of the visa requirements and uh, not a barrier anymore. Because I think most employers want to do the right thing. Most employers want to value people's skills, want to take them on board. There's this issue with, you know, the sense of severism and the sense of, you know, we, we want to help you because you are an asylum seeker. But at the same time also, I think we bring that education around um, around how people are seen as a whole and how their potentials are enhanced and how to kind of navigate the, the circumstances that employers might feel might be a barrier to engagement or, or taking someone on board. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm going to be very honest with you. So I've come across a lot of programs and a lot of initiatives who talk about empowering refugees and inspiring refugees and other marginalized groups to find work. Um, Obviously, I'm not saying that it can't be done or that the concept doesn't have any merit. But from your own experience in the work that you do at ASRC, how do we move from just catchphrases to real empowerment? What does genuine empowerment look like? And how does that help people live the life that they want to live? Oh, that's a very good question. I think um, we are always caught up in the best of intentions space as, as service providers and use that as a medium of determining how services are run. And also there's a, there's a notion of biases and privilege that, that sets in play where people actually design programs based on what they think or assume the needs of the communities are. So I think when it comes to service offering and when it comes to empowerment at its best, it's about intentionality. It's about making sure that you're putting people at the front and center. It's about making sure that the inclusion is not only from a service recipient perspective, but a service design evaluation perspective and delivery that people in those communities are actually part of the delivery of the services as well. So they better understand the issues because they've been through that journey and they can actually best support other people through that process as well. I think when it comes to that, the process of empowerment, it can be a bit um, challenging because there's the notion of empower to disempower where organizations sometimes would create systems and processes and programs that have well-meaning intention aimed at empowering community, we're actually disempowering them because there's no sense of control and agency retained or sustained with that community. So it's about having that self-awareness and always checking in with that community to ensure 
that the services we're delivering, the processes we're following, the, the mediums of approach or communication are actually in line with the expectation of the community. And I think one of the best ways to do that quite efficiently is to make sure that there's that level of inclusion when it comes to ownership of the program, when it comes to delivery of the program, evaluation of the program, and the design of the program as well. And also have sustainable outcomes for people. So it's not just a, a transactional engagement. Mm. No, I think that's important to include people every step along the way because as you said they would be in the best position to know what works for them and what they need so having them at the start obviously makes policy sense to me at least um so you recently gave a keynote lecture at the solidarity in diversity conference and your address was on allyship and advocacy what does it mean to be an ally because we hear that term thrown around I see a lot on Twitter but a lot of us don't actually know what it really means so can you tell us what does it mean to be an ally and what does it mean to be a true ally yeah I think to be an ally is to unlearn and reevaluate. I think one of the things about being an ally is people can put their hand up based on self-interest based on an experience they've had at someone they've met compassion for the issue that's and that's global or local that they are passionate about the difference they want to make so all those intentions are true and valid but i think to actually become an ally and an advocate we need to be come from a place of humility from a place where we have to be willing to learn and unlearn some of the things that we know the modem or the medium or the process that's worked for us is not going to work for the community because we don't actually know them and allyship can be people that are already part of a community part of a marginalized group or even people outside of that that really want to make a difference and amplify the voices of the people in that marginalized group so whichever category we find ourselves i think maintaining curiosity not jumping to assumptions not taking the lead not be mindful of how you perceive of how you your contribution is making a difference and what type of difference is it making checking in with the community are one of the ways to know whether you're a true ally or not because i think in western culture it's very difficult for allies or it's very challenging for allies to really understand their roles in that because they are always coming in to fix they're always coming in to create a better way and a better solution for the community. They're always coming in to be from a place of power and from a place of, of resources. So it can be quite challenging to really understand what our roles are as allies. But I think transference of that power and transference of that knowledge and expertise gradually and intentionally so that the communities can, with time, take over and be their own advocates is what the role of allies I think is in this day and age. And you said something so profound during your lecture. You said, always check with your whys and for allies to not always expect to be, you know, patted on the back. I thought that was really important to say, you know, where does that come from? Why do you believe, you know, that people should constantly check in with themselves? Yeah, because I've been through, um, you know, situations and also part of the, of, an organization as a movement and also part of communities and societies at large and also sit on different boards and, and management and committees of management as well and I've seen there that there's a missing link there and the missing link is checking with the why people go full swing into the course without having even checking the only thing they check on is their funders and the community that is supporting them rather than the actual individuals that they exist for 
So it's really about making sure that we're checking in with our why and not letting that be compromised in any way, because it's very easy to turn that same spotlight on yourself when you're trying to um, put it on, on, on the community that you're advocating for. And it becomes this um, notion of, um, of power tussle and, and tension within the community. So your very community that you're trying to help could actually be against you and against your actions, even though it's meant to be supporting them. So that's where my, my, my talk came out of and based on my own reflections and observation over time is that people always lose their why because the sense of ego, because the sense of reputation, because the sense of being the brand presence can be a bit contentious and, and be a space where people start to attribute you to the brand and start to make you the cause rather than the issue that you are actually fighting for. And it's always important for that individual to ensure that they are doing that work themselves. They are checking in with themselves and making sure they're staying true to the very reason they started the mission in the first place, the very reason why they put their hand up in the very first place and knowing that and checking whether they're still true to that and checking whether they're still true to those individuals as well. So for example, if I'm part of an organization that is supporting children, I will be thinking, you know, if a child is standing in front of me today that is vulnerable, that's homeless, that's, you know, and hears about my work and has been impacted by my work, what would they say? And most of the time we always expect good things to come out of that community. But so, for so many organizations that are well-established, they've really had a lot of tension for the, from the community that they're trying to support. And that's because they haven't been checking in with their why. That's because they haven't been giving the community enough center stage. That's because the mission is becoming about them rather than about the community. So it's really about doing that self-reflection. Um, self I always call it travel inwards put the magnifying glasses to yourself, check with yourself. Are you true to yourself? Are you true to your why? Are you true to why you actually started this in the first place and what, where, where the organization is heading? Because it's very easy once funding start coming in, once your name start getting popular for it to be quite bureaucratic and institutionalized and really dilutes the entire mission that you, you, you fought so hard for. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if you feel comfortable discussing this and feel free to say no, but would you be able to share your own journey in settling in Australia and, you know, the allies that kind of um, put into practice what you're saying? So getting out of the way, yeah. making sure that you receive um, the right support. So who was that person for you or people for you when you were settling in? Oh, there's quite a few people without putting anyone on the spotlight. I probably would talk them as people. I'm always very grateful for every role that any individual has played in my life in my 13 years of being in this country. It has really enhanced my journey, whether positive or negative role they've played has really enhanced my journey and enhanced my, um, my su um, successful transition into this country. So I came to Australia in November 2008 and I applied for asylum and I've since been granted asylum and citizenship. And my journey to to, to thriving really started when I started to see people that I could believe in me as an individual, could believe in my journey, could believe in my capabilities and could enhance that. And they were speaking life into me. And on community radio around Australia, you are listening to Woman on the Line. That was Abiola Ajitamobi, the director of the Innovation Hub at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Our next guest this week is Alison Whitaker. Alison is a Gumaroi poet and law scholar. 
Her article, Indigenous Deaths in Custody, Inquests Can Be Sites of Justice or Administrative Violence, is the focus of our interview. We'll share a link to this article on our 3CR page when this episode goes up as a podcast. Can you tell us when and why coronial inquiries are called? (laughs) Um, They're called all the time for all kinds of manners of death. Um, the, the area in which I focus um, and the area in which a lot of First Nations public attention is focused um, is on First Nations deaths in custody. So a coronial inquest is mandatory into any death in custody. Um, in, in some states and territories, it can be um, dealt with in chambers, which is um, effectively not holding an inquest, but instead uh, just holding um, an investigation. But more or less, there is some kind of transparent public review into First Nations deaths in custody, and indeed any death in custody in a coroner's court. Right. So criminal trial and inquest are different, right? Fundamentally, yes. So coroners are actually precluded from making any remarks about someone's criminal or civil liability, but they are invited to investigate the the cause and manner of someone's death, and they can issue findings and recommendations. Mm. And one thing I didn't know is that a coroner is different from a judge. What is the scope of their power? What can they actually decide on? Yeah, a coroner is not all that much different from a judge. Um, It's just that a a coroner sits on this very, very specialist jurisdiction. In most states and territories, a coroner is kind of like a magistrate level judicial officer. Um, They do, however, quite different things than you would expect a a judge to ordinarily do. Um, They sit over the coroner's court, which by its nature is inquisitorial. So it's concerned with making findings of fact um, whereas um, I guess other courts are more determined with questions of uh, liability effectively. Um, so coroners can actually do things that other judges can't necessarily, including questioning the witnesses themselves um, and having someone like a counsel assisting, working with them to help run the inquiry. Um, coroners also sit over a court that has multiple, multiple parties who aren't in that adversarial relationship necessarily or formally. Um, so you can have um, many, many, many parties engaged in a coroner's inquest um, who are not necessarily um, litigating cases against one another, but who are representing clients' interests as um, the inquest rolls on. Mm-hmm. Are there times when a coroner would decide against holding an inquest? In First Nations deaths in, cu- well, sorry, in any death in custody, usually no. Um, there are a couple of uh, exceptions. The, the clearest one that I know of is in Victoria, um, where coroners can make effectively in-chambers findings if they think that there's no need to hold an inquest. And some of these inquiries take months and even years to be heard. Why is a speedy inquest appropriate? Uh, it depends. Sometimes a speedy inquest is inappropriate. Um, sometimes families can feel rushed in the process. Sometimes the the collection of evidence can be really ineffective if it's under that pressure. Um, but that said, there have been um, massive delays in several really critical inquests that are currently before the courts. And that is a huge problem because there is the issue of people's memory fading, of opening opportunity to state witnesses to say that they don't recall because of the passage of time and the disintegration of evidence, as well as the disintegration of family resolve as they're put through this really institutionally violent process. Mm. For families who've lost a loved one, you know, inquests can be emotionally fraught experience from what you've seen and what you've read 
how can families be better supported? Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic question. Um, where I've seen families been really, really well supported, it's been at the hands of community rather than necessarily anything that a coroner's court or a state party can do. Um, so, for instance, the Dajawa Foundation has just been doing incredible, incredible work in mobilising around families during really critical times after their loved one has died in custody. And it's incredible to see as they grow and build that sense of systematic support led by lived experience and expertise um, has just been really, really remarkable. Mm. When coroner's courts are, especially here in, in New South Wales, um, I'm coming to you from Gadigal and Wonga country, um, especially here in New South Wales, there's this preoccupation with the, the idea of inquests being violent because they are, I guess, you would call them like culturally or emotionally unsafe or that families need, families are there to effectively perform a, a cultural or emotional role, which in one sense is, is critical. Um, it's critical that these processes be safe. It's critical that they observe protocol as much as any other court absorbs protocol. It's really critical that they translate that our cultural protocols into substantive rights in the coroner's court, especially around how autopsies are conducted, how custodianship of someone's body, how the, the inquest itself is situated in relation to country, uh, if it's engaging with elders, if it's making that a cultural safe space for families to engage in. Mm. Comma, on the other side of this, there's this sense that if um, coroner's courts kind of magically get all of these cultural facets right, that they'll stop being violent places. Um, and that the only role that families have in this kind of reform process is to be cultural subjects to which the coroner's court can administer. But actually families want a, a more substantive changes to the law. Sorry, I'm not speaking for any family in particular. I'm just observing a, a tendency. Um, and that is having coroners be able to do, to, to do things like widen their scope, to broaden their scope, to begin to think of First Nations deaths in custody as uh, state violence, incarceration, policy um, issues, rather than necessarily as quote unquote health issues, which coroners are so often preoccupied with, mm -hmm. um, as well as having independence in investigations as well, real meaningful independence, not having the state investigate themselves, having some degree of community involvement in investigations, clear communication with families, clear community mandated legal resourcing and being able to expand that legal strategy so that families can seek the kind of accountability that they want. So um, I think it's a, a trap to think that the problem in the coroner's court is just cultural unsafety. Actually, there's this whole other suite of things that are not addressed um, if we just apply the cultural safety lens because they're predicated on colonialism and racism. Because coroners are, are there effectively to, to do that role on cause and manner of death. They are quite preoccupied with the biological mechanisms by which someone comes to, to die. Uh, and they're not always helpful in understanding things like um, the, the violence that we want to draw attention to when we're talking about First Nations deaths in custody. So uh, a really clear example of that, um, again, not speaking for the family, but just observing what the coroner did in the inquest. Uh, is the inquest into the death of David Dungay Jr., where someone, listeners may have seen or heard a little bit about his death. 
um, but where he was pinned down by five guards over a prolonged period of time while saying he couldn't breathe until, of course, he passed away. The coroner was preoccupied with things like the interval between his heartbeat, things like cardiac arrhythmia, his diabetes, um, whereas his family were trying to draw attention to the fact that this emergency action team that's usually reserved for things like, it's effectively a a militarized unit within Long Bay Correctional Center, was mobilized because David was eating a packet of biscuits and that resulted in him being held down, um, injected with sedatives um, until he passed away. Um, And so there's that kind of tension there between what a coroner is preoccupied with, which is that mechanism of death and where it actually situates the blame for somebody dying inside. So coroner is really, really preoccupied with the, the person who has died um, to the fault that they can't see the, the, the massive amount of violence that's been exerted on that person. Before I let you go, Alison, so I'm guessing, obviously, you are pretty critical of coronial inquests and investigations, but are there maybe one or two positives that can come from an inquest if it's done right? That's an amazing question. Um, It depends what families are seeking from inquests. The victories, (laughs) victories is a a strange word to use for um, a jurisdiction that effectively just puts things on the record and that's the extent to which um, it usually exercises its powers. But um, there have been, um, I guess, recent, I would call them incursions um, made by families that have changed I guess the the vision of justice that many other families can see happening in a coroner's court Um, of course the family of auntie Tanya Day um, who have mobilized especially now around the Dajua Foundation um, as well as the family of Nathan Reynolds um, who both um, in the earlier example of talking about getting a coroner to talk about structural racism being the victory that auntie Tanya Day's family had Um, and then on the other side um, the, the family of Nathan Reynolds actually getting um, acknowledgement, even though um, their brother's cause of death was described as natural causes, actually getting an acknowledgement that it was a natural causes death contributed to medical mistreatment that Nathan suffered while he was in custody. Mm-hmm. So there are, um, I guess, small concessions that families who work, um, who push, who, who strategize can get but they're not always guaranteed um, and it shouldn't be up to families to wear that burden. And that was Alison Whitaker, a Gumaroy poet and law scholar, speaking with us about coronial inquests and whether they can be sites of justice. Our conversation with Alison was inspired by her article, Indigenous Deaths in Custody, Inquests Can Be Sites of Justice or Administrative Violence. If anything discussed in that segment was distressing for you, please know help is available. For crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And that's all for Woman on the Line today. Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 8377. 
Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website 3cr.org.au slash Women on the Line. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Ayan Shirwa and I hope you can tune in again next week.